and the left sees the world in a romantic delusion. I don't think there is a molecule of leftism that is rational. Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray on politics. Mr. Reagan. This just popped up on my YouTube and it was already a few days old and, I, and I'm not really sure why it didn't show up earlier. It seems to have a good number of views, but not as many as you might expect for a Jordan Peterson interview, especially one with Douglas Murray. I thought it deserved a little bit more attention, so I thought I'd, I'd have a look at it and give you my thoughts. In um, your monk debate in uh, Canada, you got into a, uh, a fascinating subject, which I wanted to turn to, which is the question of if we are in agreement on where the right goes wrong, racial difference being made the sole most important thing, exacerbation of such differences, and so on. The vertiginous fall that we can all identify that can happen to the extremes of the right. If we identify that, you, I think, quite rightly said to your debate opponents there, where is it that the left goes wrong? And absolutely nobody was able to even understand what you were starting to get at. And nobody picked you up on it. So oh, I wanted yeah, that to was a question that just went nowhere. Just evaporated. And it seems to me that, and obviously we're speaking in London, uh, we've had massive changes on the political left in this country in the last two years. Uh, this question of where the left goes wrong seems to me... It's a crucial question. ...absolutely vital. It's absolutely crucial. Yeah, and it's, it's a question that that intellectuals in particular, I would say, are at terrible fault for not addressing over the last virtually 100 years because the intellectuals, roughly speaking, have been complicit in failure to define the excesses of the left. Why is that? Well, I think it's partly because intellectuals tend to be left-leaning. The problem on the left is that clearly, clearly, absolutely, indisputably, if the right can go too far, and the evidence for that is the catastrophe, like the catastrophe of Auschwitz, the catastrophe of the Nazis, of all that death and suffering is evidence of wrong, which is accepted by the left, then equal evidence exists that that can happen on the left. In fact, perhaps even more evidence. And, and if you don't think the evidence is credible, then there's something wrong with you. Where does the left go wrong? You know, Jordan Peterson always says the same thing on this. He says, uh, I don't know. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I don't, I don't think we know when the left goes wrong, and that's a problem. Exactly when do things go too far on the left? And the answer is, we don't know. Here's why I think it's difficult to see where the left has gone wrong. I think the left is wrong. I think that the reason you cannot see where the left has gone wrong is because everything about left-wing ideology is wrong. I consider any sort of leftism to have gone too far. And this is one thing that I think Jordan Peterson has yet to realize. I, d I don't know if he recognizes this reality because Jordan Peterson is a bit of a romantic, right? He has himself admitted that he has a kind of leftist brain, right? He has a kind of liberal proclivity, right? His brain leans left, despite the fact that he tries to be as rational as he can. And I have actually always said this since I was a kid about myself. But I come at this from a very different perspective. I don't come at this from a clinical psychologist perspective. I come at this from the perspective of a writer. I have an artist's brain, but I grew up in a pragmatic family. And what I recognized pretty young about my high school age was that, that people who think like me are usually wrong. And why did I think that? I thought that because I realized that, that a lot of the time I was thinking about the world in the way that I wanted to believe the world was, not in the way the world actually 
was. It's called Romanticism. Romanticism is an artistic movement. The basic concept of Romanticism is that everything is sort of beautified. Everything is sort of like, everything is characterized in this sort of rose-colored glasses kind of way. I should name off some romantic artists. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Like, okay, so, well, yeah, no, Friedrich. There is a German painter by the name of Caspar David Friedrich. He's one of my favorite painters. Beautiful paintings. You can look at that. But there's a lot of different artists with different styles and even the darker side of things are made to seem beautiful with romanticism and this is kind of how I looked at the world as a kid right I loved the idea of going on adventures right I grew up with Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and, and Superman and Star Wars and these kinds of things now we can separate uh you know fiction from reality that said romanticizing the world in your head all the time as like an artist or as a writer like I, I did as a kid I realized I can't trust myself to create political policy, right? I had to change my way of thinking. Politics and and producing actual policy and ideas to help the world, that's a very difficult thing to do. And to just have this very simplistic view of, you know, I'm good, these people are bad, you know, you know, which the left kind of does with, like, their victim classes and their oppressor classes. Um, that's a great... It's a, so much fun to think that way. But it's the wrong way of thinking about the world. And if these people are able to create public policy for the rest of us, it will naturally lead us to destruction. I, I know these guys keep talking about how once you get too far right, you get into, like, racism, white supremacy, Nazism, fascism, that kind of stuff. I don't really look at it like that. I consider the right to be a spectrum of reason. And then if you are a white nationalist or you're, um, you know, you're a fascist or something like that, you're going outside the realm of reason and you're, you're in this sort of distorted version of reality. And I actually think that the left is the same thing. And I don't think that Hitler was right wing, right? I don't think that he was intellectually right wing. I don't think that his mind... I think Hitler was like a romantic. I think he was like a leftist romantic, right? He had these ideas. He had this idea of utopia, right? Same with Karl Marx, right? These guys, you know, they have these ideas of these utopias. But I would say that um, the vision somebody has of utopia and trying to draw society into it is inevitably going to draw society into ruin. So I think that there is a spectrum of reason. I think that the difference between the hard right and the moderate right is merely a difference between the optimist and the realist, right? So the person on the hard right might be, you know, super pro-gun. He might be like, you know, hardcore military guy, right? Uh, now, why is he like that? He's not like that because he loves killing, which is what the left would have you believe, or he's a particularly violent person, um, but rather because he recognizes that there are people in the world who like killing. There are hyper-violent people, right? And those people need to be stopped. They, those need, you know, there are a lot of fathers out there who feel it necessary to be able to protect their family. And so they think they should own a gun. There are a lot of people out there who think, you know what, we need to protect the vulnerable in our society against outside, outside forces that might want to attack us, right? So we need to have a strong military. This does not necessarily mean that these people are violent people. They're just, they're just being rational about what exists in the world, about protecting the vulnerable from the potential threats that exist, right? And those who are sort of moderate right, super moderate right-wing people, are probably people who don't own a gun. Although they recognize the need for a strong defense and they're rationally... Um, promoting that idea, they don't maybe necessarily see a need for it in their own personal life, right? So to them, they're, a, they're much happier living a cozy existence reading a book than they are, you know, go out fight, going out and fighting a war for their country, 
right? But both the person on the far right and the moderate right, they're both looking at the world in the same way. They're both clearly perceiving the world as reality. So the white supremacists, the racists, they're looking at a distorted version of reality, right? And the leftist, even the moderate leftist, is also looking at a distorted version of reality. If you live in a fantasy world, you will design government policies that work within the parameters of that fantasy world. You're not going to be designing public policy designed to work within reality. Not working within the parameters of reality will eventually lead to catastrophe, right? That's what happened in Nazi Germany. That's what happened with the USSR, right? That's what happened in China. That's what happened in North Korea. That's what happens in all these places that try to design these utopias, but they're not working in the parameters of reality. These white supremacists, these neo-Nazis, these kind of guys, they're not working within reality. The left is not working within reality. They're the same thing. They're different colors of the same monster. So in that way, I think the left is always wrong from beginning to end, from moderate leftists to radical leftists. I don't think that there is a molecule of leftism that is rational. I, I think that the problem is that we've always placed the left and the right on equal footing. We've always said that there is a right wing and there's a left wing. And maybe at certain times in history they did they were on equal footing. Maybe the left and the right were just different sides of the spectrum of the rational. But now I think the right is the only group of people in America that are on the spectrum of the rational, right? And that's probably why we have so many different people on the right now. We have gay atheists. We have libertarians. We have black people, Hispanics, women. So many different people from different kinds of groups that aren't traditionally considered conservative are joining the conservative party because of rationalism. And I, I don't know if it's that the right has always been sort of the rational side or if it's sort of kind of adopted all the rational, reasonable ideas about the world and the left has just slowly drifted away. I'm, I'm not really sure what's happened. But now the right is the spectrum of the rational. And I absolutely exclude all the racists from that. And obviously you exclude the left from that. And, and so what you're left with is just, you know, the right. And, the, you know, the right is right. The right is rational. It's, it's appropriately named. I think the problem there is not exactly so much the definition of intelligence as the only important, what would you say, defining characteristic of human beings, but to conflate intelligence with value or moral virtue. Yeah, and worth. Right, yes, worth. That, that's right. the really pernicious element. And there are differences in their economic worth, but that doesn't mean that there are differences in their intrinsic worth. And that's something that has to be very, very carefully laid out. IQ tests produce ethnic differences. And then you might say, well, that constitutes a, a sign of bias. It's like, okay, if that was true, then IQ tests would, they would underpredict the real life performance of the ethnic groups where IQ scores are lower, but they don't. So there's no evidence of bias in terms of prediction. Now you could say, well, that means the whole system is rigged. The IQ system is rigged and the life outcome system is rigged. And that would be basically the position of the egalitarian left. It's like, fair enough, that could be the case. But, but there's another ugly thing that lurks here too, is that, well, let's say that you decide that the way that you're going to deal with the fact that there are ethnic differences in IQ in the literature, is that you're going to throw IQ out completely. All right, so let's say we decide just to scrap the idea of IQ. Well, here's a problem. Our hierarchies are increasingly IQ predicated. Yeah. And so what's happening is that the dispossessed that the left hypothetically is concerned about and, and genuinely concerned about to the degree that there's genuine 
and proper engagement on the left, because it's the proper role of the left, is that if you don't take differences in cognitive function into account, you are going to miss what's going to dispossess most people over the next 30 or 40 years, because we're producing a cognitive hierarchy. And increasingly, the spoils of the hierarchy are going to people who are in the cognitive stratosphere. The thing I've, I've been trying to work out my own you know, disturbance about this issue for a while, and I suppose I've recently managed to, to hone it down to this, that it's not that I think that it should be ignored, I don't think it can be denied, but that I suppose one of the things that makes me so uncomfortable about the IQ thing is that I can foresee, if, if, if the people who are most interested in it keep pushing it like this, I see some terrible concatenation of nightmares because of course this isn't happening in a vacuum it's also in my view happening at a point when let, let me put it this way the concept of the sanctity of the individual whether you define that in a religious context or in, a, in the kind of secular religious context in which some of us currently hold this idea at the time in which the notion of the sanctity of the individual is sort of eroding in a society, that the combination of that happening at the same time as an obsession with IQ in the century ahead of us just has the potential for a catastrophe of 20th century proportions. And that's the reason why I just fear that if this isn't dealt with in a reasonable way, it comes at us in the most unreasonable way imaginable somewhere down the line. I'm not sure I quite understand this. I think Douglas Murray is concerned with IQ being used as a generic metric that strips us of our individuality. Um, but IQ has been used for almost 100 years now, but we are becoming ever more individualistic in our society. So much so that young people are demanding to be respected just for being unique. That's why we call them snowflakes. That's the whole reason for calling them snowflakes. The irony is they also classify everybody in order to define victim classes and oppressor classes, but not at the expense of their own individuality. The problem isn't that people are losing sight of the value of individuality, is that they're, they're only applying those values to themselves and only the positive half of that value. But look, society is irrevocably individualistic today. We will, we're never going to become less individualistic. The left is holding tight to the vanishing remnants of inferior, superior group identity politics. But for the most part, that sort of thinking is quickly becoming archaic. That said, there is value in categorizing people. For research in various scientific disciplines, for instance, it has immense value. You know, you can't simply say that if you use this thing in this way, it's bad, and therefore this thing is bad. Some wonderful things can be weaponized. It doesn't mean that they lose all utility, right? If somebody kills somebody with a hammer, we don't outlaw hammers, right? We don't suddenly become afraid that hammers are all going to be used for evil from this point into eternity. We recognize that hammers have a use other than murder, so we continue to use them. Same with IQ tests. You know, despite the alarmism that everybody raises about the, you know, a potential, a potential other holocaust, right? An another rise of Nazism or something like that. I actually think that we are in the least danger of this kind of atrocity, right? And the reason is because we are reminded of it constantly. You cannot go a week watching television, listening to the radio, reading a book without some reference to Hitler or the Nazis or the Holocaust. And if not that, slavery or civil rights or something like that. There are certain historic atrocities that will probably not happen again in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, in our grandchildren's lifetime, because 
they constantly beat us over the head with it. This was a horrible atrocity. Don't ever let it happen again. Yeah, we get it. It's not going to happen again. Most of the atrocities that occur throughout history never happened before. They came about in such a new way that nobody anticipated them. And that's why they happened, right? An atrocity can't happen that good people anticipate and because they'll stop it, right? Good people will stop atrocities before they happen if they recognize that they're happening. It's only when they don't recognize they're happening that they happen. So instead of telling people, let's not let this happen again, you know, you have to prepare them for the unexpected. That's a very different thing. But I digress. So yes, there are people in the world that argue for eugenics, right? Kill off the inferior, only allow the fittest to thrive, right? There is that thinking among some people, but they're kind of fringe people, right? They're not, it's not, it's not just not mainstream. It's not even remotely close to mainstream. So, so like the fear of IQ becoming weaponized or something that people improperly use is an insignificant factor when considering all the benefit one can have from studying IQ. I believe. Now, then you might say, well, we can't use the cognitive tests because they produce ethnic differences. And you can moderate that by interleaving personality, which is one way of dealing with it. We're going to use something else. It's like, okay, you're going to use something else. Well, it turns out that whatever else you use is more biased than the thing you're fleeing from. And that's what's manifesting itself at Harvard. Well, we'll use our subjective judgment. And, you know, the Harvard people have been hand-waving about the fact that their bloody uh, uh, admission criteria are so sophisticated that you can't capture them with mere quantitative analysis. This is their latest one after trying to just make sure nobody had access to what they were actually doing. That's right. No, we're so sophisticated that we, we couldn't possibly quantify it. It's like, that's not sophisticated. That's prejudice. At every single stage, Harvard University, in this case, Asian students have brought, at every single stage, they've done everything they can to cover over the actual fact that they are themselves being biased. Yes, 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 definitely. Sure, and so so what's happening is that wherever subjectivity is allowed to enter into the equation, the Asians are downgraded as a consequence of, of personality, which isn't personality. It's actually the subjective sense that the evaluators produce when they read through the applications yes. and they know that the applicant is Asian. And it wasn't even, without even meeting the applicant, yes. judging the person on racial characteristics yes. without having met them. Yes. Yeah, this is, this is fascinating. I haven't read that much about the Harvard scandal, but um, I, I know that, you know, I know the basics. But the, um, I didn't know how hard they were trying to cover that up. This is kind of news to me, which I think is fascinating. I suppose if you're an academic, this is something that you read about intensely. I I think Berkeley actually has a a policy where they're not allowed to discriminate in any way, right? And so Berkeley ends up with like an inordinate amount of of Asian students. It's like, you know, a a huge percentage of Asian Asian students. Um, And I don't really have a problem with that. I don't don't see why merit-based admission is a problem. There's this idea in our culture that we developed a while ago that says ethnic diversity and cultural diversity are good are good, right? They're ethical, they're good, they're of a benefit to the world. I'm not sure that that's true, right? Um, Lauren Southern goes on about this a lot. She says, you know, you could have an ethnically diverse monoculture, and that can be harmonious. But cultural diversity facilitates conflict. So if you have multiple cultures within the same area, right, within the same geographical area, and each of these cultures has opposing aims or opposing values, 
then there is going to inevitably be conflict. And that's absolutely right. That makes perfect sense. And and I'm not I'm not 100% convinced that no cultures ever can ever live together in any way whatsoever, right? Obviously, there are some cultures that are similar enough that they can actually live side by side harmoniously. I don't think Lauren Southern says you can't have um, harmonious uh, multiculturalism, but you can't always, right? I think that's our point, is you can't always. I think that a lot of people believe that since we have this sort of modern, sophisticated, elevated culture in America, that integrating every culture in the world into this harmony is is seamless. It's, it's easy. It, it's natural. But it isn't natural, and it certainly isn't easy. Racism does not go well with American culture, at least not white American culture. That's one fairly sort of moderate difference. But if you find a bunch of differences, right, say like a severe hatred of homosexuals or or like the idea that you can beat up your wife or something like that, right? Or that you could murder your wife for infidelity or something like this, right? There are some cultures that have these kind of extreme ethics. So if you have a society in which certain kinds of physical violence are expected, if you bring people from that culture into a culture who has is completely unaware of the idea that physical violence is acceptable amongst sort of these other people, what you end up with is a bunch of incredibly vulnerable people and a bunch of very hostile people um, because violence in the vulnerable group is unacceptable and violence in the hostile group is completely acceptable, right? Under certain circumstances. And that's what you found happening in Sweden, right? When they would bring immigrants into Sweden. That's why they have all the trouble trouble over there. And so that's Lauren Southern's position on that sort of stuff. It, and, and here's my position. My position is that, you know, you can have ethnic diversity and that can be harmonious you can have even sometimes cultural diversity and i think that can be harmonious although i agree with lauren southern's point um however it is not necessarily good in america for a long time we've advocated this idea of multiculturalism as a positive ethic as a, an actually a good thing right as benefit to society and the same with ethnic diversity ethnic diversity is considered a benefit to society that's why universities have certain quotas and stuff like that. To advocate it as a public good, I think, is disingenuous. That's not real. I actually think it was Douglas Murray, I heard, who once said that um, the cultural diversity of Britain has not benefited Britain in any way that he can see other than providing the people of Britain with a new variety of types of food. <laughs> so, yeah, cultural diversity does bring different kinds of cuisine. But beyond that, what is the value? I'm not sure. And there's a variety of things that are appalling about that. And one of them, of course, is the denial of the opportunity to attend a top-tier university like Harvard for the students who were qualified to attend, the Asian students. But there's another element to this that's also equally pernicious and in some sense more self-serving. Like if you set up your society properly, and this is the equality of opportunity doctrine, it's in everyone's best interest to exploit the talented maximally, right? Because in every domain of productive endeavor, a small proportion of people do most of the productive work. And so you, you want to take advantage of those people, those one in a thousand people or one in 10,000 people who are mathematically gifted, for example, or gifted in whatever way they happen to be gifted. And so if you don't select your top tier candidates, so let's say the Asian students in, in the case of Harvard, then society doesn't get a chance to exploit them properly and everyone ends up poorer. Apart from the fact that each individual doesn't get their opportunity, there's a social cost here too that's not trivial. And this is a magnificent point, okay? 
Rejecting merit-based discrimination for racial discrimination makes life worse for everyone. I mean, think about it. If you decided that, you know, we don't want the best engineers in our school, we only want... We want the best of every race. Let's say the top 10 engineers in the world are all Asian guys. But instead of getting that, we get one Asian guy, one white guy, one Samoan, one black guy, one Mexican, whatever. We get somebody from like every culture and subculture that we can find to make up 10, whatever. And what we find is the next notch down from the top 10 Asian guys are like, you know, number number 1,000 or something. Like, like the top white guy isn't even like in the top 1,000, let's say. Well, what about the nine Asian guys that didn't get into Harvard? Let's say none of those nine next guys get in anywhere. And actually, one of those nine great Asian dudes would have invented technology that would have revolutionized the world, right? What if, what if it would have saved your mother's life because he would have invented some kind of like biotechnology that would have cured a cancer or something like that? The idea that we are taking less than the best for cultural diversity makes everyone's life worse. Technology grows at a slower pace. Art grows at a slower slower pace. Hollywood is the best illustration of this. You know, it's funny, you're, you know, I always hear people complain, like, uh, God, I could write a movie better than this, you know. You probably could. You probably could. Because the guy who wrote it is probably the cousin of somebody, you know. And, and that's the problem with this town. Um, but there are some people who get breaks. But they're almost always people of color, homosexuals, you know, women, whatever, because they're trying to build those groups up in Hollywood. They are, they are actively discriminating against straight white men in Hollywood. They actively discriminate against them. And the audience is who suffers for that. This is what happens in the colleges when you discriminate against people. This is what happens in Hollywood when you discriminate against people. This is what happens in, out in the workforce in other professions when you discriminate against people. Discrimination is ugly and horrible and should not be happening. There's something that's gone wrong from the 20th century and is still going wrong on this. Um, I think I've said to you before that there seems to be this presumption still, if, if the, this is a political center, that if you take one step to the political right, say by wanting to have lower taxes, that makes you right wing. And beyond that, it's just a vertiginous hurtle down to Nazism. It's, it's lower taxes, alt-right Nazism. Yes. And on the left of the spectrum, it's possible to step left, beyond the left, run left, keep running, yeah. and the end of the running never includes the gulag. Never, never, never. Not, and not in the education systems either. No one knows about it. When my students at, at the University of Toronto, the first time they hear about what happened in the Soviet Union is in my personality class. It's like, well, what the hell? First of all, really in a personality class, but the students otherwise don't know. It's like, oh, really? We had a hundred million corpses pile up and damn near put the entire planet to the torch because of the tension between the West and, and the radical left. And, well, we're, we're just going to put that, sweep that under the rug like it never happened. You know, I never thought about this, but they're absolutely right. We never learn about the atrocities of the left in American public schools. We always say never forget. We say never forget about a lot of things, right? I had to sit through countless hours of American slavery movies in school as a boy. And the reason given? So that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. That we say that. But the mistakes that our society chooses to remember are not necessarily the worst mistakes. It's the mistakes that some people choose to remind us of because, because they support some very specific agenda or another. If we truly want to avoid making the mistakes of the past, we must be comprehensive 
in our education and our analysis of history. And that includes learning about the atrocities of communism. In London, where we're sitting uh, last week uh, on a morning television chat show, a young woman who was invited on got into a row with a presenter, and uh, he was portraying her because, because he supported Trump and she was anti-Trump. He said, well, you know, since you loved Obama so much, she said, I didn't love Obama, she says. Uh, and she says, I'm a communist. Uh, I didn't love Obama. I'm, I'm, I'm literally a communist, you idiot. And this, as we speak, has become not just enormously popular, but gigglesome yeah. on the left yeah. in this country. And, and, and I'm not talking about the far left. I'm talking about the left right up to and involved with Her Majesty's opposition. Uh, uh, I'm literally a communist has just been made into a T-shirt. Mm. Uh, 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 by a group on the left, and they're selling it. That's funny. I should make a shirt that says, I'm literally a capitalist. And this, this in an era when we've been endlessly told, you know, the only thing you do if you see a fascist is to punch them in the face. And, and there seems to be, as I've always said, a supply and demand problem with the fascists. Yes. There, there aren't enough yes. uh, for the demand there seems to be to find them. Uh, uh, but yet, here you have, live on television, uh, 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 I'm literally a communist, and it's unimaginable. We all know it's unimaginable that somebody would say, I'm literally a fascist on TV, and everyone would find it wonderful, and everyone would make I'm literally a fascist T-shirt. So this, this 20th century error, this educational error, seems to me to be having real-world oh, yes, consequences. A, it's, no, of it's a, a catastrophe. That... It, means that, it means that we learned half the lesson. We sort of learned half the lesson of the 20th century. Right. And, and well, thank God, we sort of learned half the lesson, but the other half has not been learned. And that's not acceptable, not in the least acceptable. You know, the data in the United States indicates that one out of five social science professors are self-proclaimed Marxists. Like, seriously? You're, yeah, not only am I a Marxist, it's one of the things that makes me morally virtuous. Well, what about the 20th century? Well, that wasn't real communism. It's like... And I know, I know what that means. It's, it's the most arrogant possible statement. What it means is that, well, you know those people who tried it before? They didn't really have the same nuanced understanding of the sophistication of Karl Marx's revelation that I have, or the moral character that I have, so that if I had been placed in charge, let's say, of the Russian Revolution, the utopia, that was only a couple of decades away. That's what it means. This is a hilariously accurate illustration of modern-day Marxists. Real communism has never been tried. Yes, it has. Okay, communism doesn't work because it lacks sufficient natural incentives. Artificial incentives then have to be invented, namely the threat of punishment. And look, if punishment is your primary incentive for everything, then you must have officials to enforce the rules and to dish out this punishment. The power allotted to these officials creates an instant imbalance in society. You have the authorities and you have the civilians. And, and that's it. That becomes your, your society. The haves and have-nots. You have instantly divided your society into those that receive the punishment and those that dish out the punishment. And so communism, by its very nature, is self-defeating. To enforce equality, you have to make certain people unequal. Honestly, it's insane that anyone ever even tried it. You have this powerful class of judges and executioners, and you have this lower class of the controlled. And, then, and this will always happen. This will always happen. But particularly unimaginable still, this, this, this idea even after the 20th century, that these 
Marxists, literally a communist people, still are standing on the piles of tens of millions of skulls saying a bit more violence and we might yeah. yet get to utopia. Yeah. It's yeah. an extraordinary... Always one murder away from utopia. One more murder away from utopia. Well, you know, and the, the way that the, the leftists defend themselves is by saying things like, well, what about all the deaths created by capitalism? You're not factoring them into the equation. And then, of course, the problem there is that most systems um, manifest themselves in various forms of bloody excess. And uh, at the very least, you can say that the... Uh the number of people raised out of poverty by capitalism is significantly higher than the number well, of people well, raised out of poverty well, by communism. Well, this is, the, this, is, this is, I think there's something crucial about that. Because one of the things that we will have to contend with is something like that, which is that every system is in some sense a system of oppression and bloodshed. But some of them also produce a modicum of wealth and happiness. And I would say that that's the proper defense of what, what has been established as a consequence of the primacy of the individual in the conceptual schemes of the West. Is our bloody oppressive system at least produces some modicum of wealth and well-being. Whereas the communist system produced zero wealth and a tremendous amount of collateral destruction. And so it could easily be that we're in a position where all we have to choose from is horrible systems, some of which do some things right now and then. And that would be our system. That would be the Western system. And I think there's plenty of evidence for that too, accruing evidence, because what's happening right now across the world is that as the, the idea of individual sovereignty and associated property rights and freedom of choice and so forth are increasingly instantiated in developing countries, those countries are moving away from conditions of abysmal poverty at a staggering rate. I mean, at least there are fewer people starving now. There are more people being lifted out of absolute poverty. Child mortality rates, you know, child mortality rates in Africa now match those in Europe in 1950. It's like that's cause for celebration. And we have halved the number of people in absolute poverty since the beginning of the millennium. Capitalism causes violence. Compared to what? Compared to zero violence? Okay. Okay, humans are violent by nature. Various forms of government either incentivize violence or disincentivize violence. With capitalism paired with Christianity and democracy, the West has become less violent. This is fact. The West has produced so much technology and wealth that we can sustain the lives of the sick and the vulnerable much, much better. So capitalism is not only helpful in terms of reducing the amount of violence and death that has occurred in the world, but it's able to help everyone survive and live much better lives whilst they're surviving. In the end, the point is capitalism is working. And we have literally come up with no other economic system that has produced more wealth or a higher standard of living. Anyway, you know what? I thought this was a beautiful conversation between these two. At the end of the day, I love stuff like this because I've gained so many different um, new perspectives on so many different little issues uh, through this conversation. I mean, getting, getting brilliant minds like this together to just talk this stuff out and like pick their brain about their ideas about this stuff and, and maybe seeing them come up with new ideas about this stuff just on the spot. Um, 
it helps me to develop my own ideas about this stuff. And hopefully it helps you guys develop your own ideas about this stuff. And hopefully I'll be on a show with one of you one day talking about this stuff. And, you know, I'll be throwing ideas out and you'll be throwing ideas out. And uh, <laughs> we'll be making the world a better place. Uh, but anyway, I had fun with this video and I hope a lot of people see it. I think it's a very valuable hour-long conversation. All right, that's it for me. If you like this video, hit the like button. If you want to see more like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, look, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll just disappear from the internet. No, I'm not really going to do that. <laughs> uh, you're stuck with me. Good night. We have so many people who can't see a fat man standing beside a thin one without coming to the conclusion the fat man got that way by taking advantage of the thin one. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. Now... <laughs>